Hey guys, what's up? It is week uh, 118. I have some reviews for you, obviously. Uh, I just want to let you guys know, you know, I don't have that many Twitter followers. I don't post on there very often, but I do post occasionally. So if you guys want to follow me on Twitter, that'd be great. The link is below. Also, my Instagram's below. Uh, there's all sorts of links below. So check those out. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram's, you know, Sometimes, in a lot of ways, way more fun than Facebook. So I guess we're going to hop into these reviews. Uh, the first one I am going to cover is the 1976 classic from Arrow uh, Video. And this is Alice Sweet Alice. Yes. Um, you know, I saw this movie years back. And it was definitely, I, I saw it, I think, on DVD. I might even saw this one on VHS. So it's been a long time since I watched it. Over over 12 years for sure, maybe maybe even 15. But uh, I put this in and I, I didn't remember everything about it. I remembered the raincoat, which is, you know, kind of inspired by Don't Look Now. Um, yeah, I was so glad to revisit this one. Uh, Albert Soul, Alfred Soul didn't really direct that many movies, but this is uh, a proto slasher and it's, it has a lot of psychological stuff in here. Uh, the first thing people say about this movie every time, so let's get it out of the way, is it's an early appearance by Brooke Shields. Probably her first movie, I believe. She plays a young little girl here. This movie, uh, uh, similar to Fulci, who I fe feel is someone who judges Catholicism from within, that he understands the religion or he actually was a part of it. And there's so many people that seem to do this from an outside point of view, I believe that this director um, grow, grew up and you know deep into the Catholicism in the New Jersey neighborhood, so he knows what he's talking about. And this movie is definitely heavily inspired by that. We have uh, this kind of this family: uh, a husband and wife are separated. They have two kids, and they're getting their first communion, which is actually the original title of this movie was Communion, and it's much it's better fitting than Alice Sweet Alice. But you know, back in the '70s, those kind of old bitty titles like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane probably were still kind of in people's recent memory whatever happened to Aunt Alice that kind of thing so Alice sweet Alice there we go that's probably why it ended up with that title so um, essentially what happens is um, there's two daughters one is more of a troublemaker uh, Alice of course and then there's one that's just like sweet and just everybody loves her and she is brutally murdered within the first 10 minutes of this movie in kind of a really complicated, really creepy way in the church. And this sets up this, everybody's eyes are on Alice. And strange things start to happen. Uh, you know, people start to end up dead. And there's a mystery that is in, involved here. And there's a priest who's trying to figure it out. The father comes back and he's kind of trying to figure it out. So we have this relationship with the mother and the father who's constantly going at it and kind of blaming themselves. And we're always wondering, um, did Alice actually do it? And Alice is put into some sort of psychological, you know, care facility. So you have all that going on. You have some really, really awesome iconography with the mask. Of course, it wears that clear mask that has the features distorted, your own features distorted, which is creepy. And actually in the commentary, one of the commentaries, the guy does mention Paranoiac with Oliver Reed having that mask previous. And we, we me and Jeremy covered that one last week. So that was nice to see them give that movie a shout out because that movie does have that mask. It's a very iconic and very creepy mask. It was a good choice for the film. And uh, some of the killings or violence in the movie is actually very brutal. And it's played, like, realistically, almost in kind of a bothersome way. Uh, I, I thought that was very, um, you know, well done and, and impactful. I thought that the, the score was great. Which is, there's actually an interview on here with the composer. I, I enjoyed the music in here. I thought it was creepy and unsettling and from what I remember of it. 
But my favorite thing about the movie is how it's shot. I just, the camera always seems to be alive. In a, in a shot that in many movies would be stationary, it still has that kind of movement to it. Just a slight movement all the time. And it keeps for an appealing look to the movie and you never get bored watching it, even if some people could consider this a slow movie. The filmmaking is so well done, I think, that it doesn't feel slow at all. Um, there's a character in this movie that you have to bring up. He is um, this strange guy who owns the you know, apartment facility that Alice and her entire family live in and he's this this obese man and he's very creepy and um, he's like a pedophile and he keeps coming on to Alice and he has all these kittens and he's just actually it's so disgusting over the top disgusting like you actually look at him and he has like a, a pee stain on his pants and you're like that's so disgusting but uh, this character is really weird and unique and different and, and apparently in real life he was very unique and weird and different too. So that character just has to be brought up and how early the 70s movies, you know, I know there was an earlier Hammer movie with like kind of the pedophile character, but the pedophile in that movie is just super creepy and it always became like a staple of horror movies, the danger of children. But in this one, Alice is possibly dangerous as well. But like I said, there's a scene on the stairwell. They use the stairwell pretty well and they use it frequently actually in here, I think, a couple times going up and down it. But when somebody's attacked on the stairwell, the way that's shot and the, the, the imagery afterwards calling out into to the pouring rain and the puddle of blood behind it is just kind of haunting. Uh, and there is one shot in here that I absolutely love, the in-camera trickery that they did with the character being thrown out of a building and the, the reflections in the mirror and how they did it and everything like that. I was like, now that is some clever low-budget filmmaking. But like I said, I love how it's shot. And the director mentions that he was fighting the cinematographer the whole time. Or at one point, there was a different cinematographer from day to day. And he was, he was arguing with them, I want it like this, because he hadn't done that many movies. But uh, regardless, I think it is kind of like an unsung kind of masterpiece. I know it's got its credit now, but... But it's really a, a, a great horror movie, a much better... I mean, it is popular, but I don't want to say this and sound negative, but Halloween's always brought up, you know, or Black Christmas. And I think Alice, Sweet Alice, I, I haven't seen Black Christmas in a while, but Alice, Sweet Alice is just as good as Black Christmas if I, in my memory to me. I, I know I need to revisit it, but... I think it's it's just a well put together movie, um, and the relationship with the husband and wife is is kind of interesting. They cut some of that out, and I'm kind of grateful for that. But the husband kind of has that sturdy, kind of distant acting, and it, that helps. Although you could see it as kind of stiff acting, but it helps with the father kind of being distant from the family as well. Um, highly recommended movie. It looks really good. I thought they cleaned it up. I don't remember how it looked previously. I had no complaints previously, but I thought this one looked great. And um, they pour over the old commentary with Albert Soule, and I think it's the editor and uh, William Lustig uh, um, on there as well, because this was originally released by Anchor Bay, and I think Lustig had something to do with that release. So it's ported it over. It was lost on the Hen's Tooth DVD, so that's finally back. We have a new commentary with a film historian who seems to absolutely love this movie, and he, he um, brings up a very, I guess, poignant question that says, people love this movie, but they do they really understand it? And, you know, that with the Catholicism, and I'm sure there's lots of other things, psychological stuff going on in there. There's an interview with the director, which was uh, really appealing because he talks about his first film being a porno flick and how he got in trouble for it and kind of how it made a bunch of money, but they kind of confiscated it everywhere because he broke uh, uh, obscenity laws. So that's interesting. Uh, like I said, there's an interview with the composers, interview with the lead actor in here. And there's a location scouting with Michael Gingold. So it's a nice, solid release, uh, well-rounded of, uh, you know, I know it, I don't want to say it's underrated because it's got appreciation in the years, but I still think it's kind of a, you know, um, 
almost classic horror movie. I don't like when you consider like Halloween, Texas Chainsaw, it's just right under there. And I think that with more appreciation and more love at its release, it could have been probably a little higher, closer to it and got, but uh, just a nice release from Arrow and uh, a good one too. Happy to see it on Blu-ray finally. All of these extras were Patterson residents, friends and family, recruited for the film. The number has been thrown around that Seoul employed 700 extras. That's me. That, right there. All right, I was on the landing. <laughs> we, How did you do that? It drives me nuts. I was on the landing dropping the knife, and we did this like 20 times. So I started watching movies, uh, horror movies and thrillers, and turning the sound down. take little peaks and just completely uh, chill myself to the bone. This is the house scene in the opening of the film and also after Annie is attacked by the killer inside. Brooke Shields in Holy Terror. You're hurting your mother. I don't want you to talk like that. Now listen. I don't want you to worry. I'm going to find out the truth. Okay, the next one is from Arrow Video, and it's a doozy as well. It is 1980s Cruisin' by William Friedkin. Yes, oh, man. This is a wild movie, to be honest. Uh, I saw this a few years back for the first time. Oh, I don't know how to go about this one, but okay, Cruising. It's, uh, there's a, a homosexual murder going around New York City in the 80s, early 80s, 1980, so, and uh, they put Al Pacino as a young recruit cop. Paul Servino kind of has him go into undercover and go into the S&M clubs where these murders are taking place, and he has to figure out who this killer is. So, Cruising, double meaning, you know, they mentioned that it's, you know, the police cruising uh, around to find suspect, and also cruising to pick up, you know, anonymous homosexual relationships or sex, you know, that kind of deal. This is right at 1980. This is right at, you know, AIDS was probably happening, but no one really had a name for it. So it was before um, the shit hit the fan on that, the AIDS epidemic. And it's also of a subculture that really I don't think exists. Uh, it probably didn't exist for very long, the leather kind of S&M bondage deal. So it's kind of a strange deal. There's a lot of things about this movie that a lot of people do know, of course, that there's 40 minutes of deleted footage, which is supposed to be all hard core stuff that William Friedkin put in the movie because he knew that he was going to play a game with the MPAA and they were going to ask him to cut it so he'd get the movie he wanted. Uh, this also movie has a very, very unique uh, you know, filmmaking history as well uh, how it was made and uh, the you know controversy that it had because a lot of the gay community thought that they were trying to bashing a cruise, uh, bashing the homosexual community when they were trying to start to get rights and everything like that. They didn't want to be looked at as this kind of you know uh, scuzzy, sleazy murder group of people or something like that. But 
Uh, Cruising, it's a very interesting movie. Um, I really like this one, actually. I think it's a really well-made kind of thriller, horror film, uh, police procedural kind of deal. Um, the cast is amazing. Of course, I said we had Al Pacino and Paul Servino, but we also have Karen Allen, who is uh, the sweetest-looking lady of all time. You know, I love her, loved her ever since I saw her in Scrooge as a little kid. I just thought that she had the most innocent, sweetest face I've ever seen. I always liked her acting ability, thought she was tremendous and everything, and I thought she should have been a huge star. And hopefully, maybe maybe she'll have her, you know, time in the, you know, fame again. But she's tremendous. She has a little smaller part. I would have liked to see her a little bit more. And then we also have uh, pretty much the rest of the cast is kind of, um, they're, they're a bunch of character actors, and they're, they're very famous, but they are just kind of smaller roles. We actually have a couple real police detectives that helped, you know, worked in kind of these areas in the movie, so that's cool. But we have people like Joe Spinell, one of the best character actors of all time, uh, and he's tremendous in this movie, very creepy. Uh, Mike Starr, also playing a very creepy, gross cop. James Remar, who you can't pass up, come on. Uh, Powers Booth, who else pops up in here? Ed O'Neill. It's just got a tremendous cast, and there's other people I'm missing too. And I think it's very well acted. Um, so the opening, there's one really, really brutal murder in here that I kind of was shocked by in the opening, of course. Uh, it gets uh, involving bondage and has some weird inserts in it and stuff like that. But half of the interesting part about this movie is it brings up these questions about, you know, almost this weird thing with Al Pacino being undercover in this S&M club and opening his eyes and kind of, it messes with his own psychology. And in the commentaries, there's two commentaries on here, the old one ported over, and then there's a new one with William Friedkin and kind of a moderator talking to him. And I think the new one's better because it, it interacts and stuff like that. And he gives more depth about the movie instead of just kind of saying what's on screen and how they shot it and stuff like that. I think the second commentary is much better because Friedkin has somebody to bounce off of and, and you know, share ideas and freaking's always one of those guys that's not afraid to speak his mind so when somebody says something he doesn't like or he doesn't agree with he'll be like no that's not what i was and you know he's never one to tap or or tread lightly on a subject so that is a nicer commentary, but they're, they're going into like the um, idea of, you know, Al Pacino losing himself into this role as being this character and getting deeper into this uh, S&M community and kind of maybe being a suspect himself because the character carries this knife. And throughout the movie, it has almost like a fallen or hidden or one of those first power jump to the body kind of killer things is at, at points you think. And they blur the lines because the real cases and the real stuff this is based on was very blurry. And in the time back in the day, and they still do it with cases, uh, serial killers and stuff. They try to blame multiple murderers. They pin murders on certain people so they can close these cases. So that that's kind of what this movie was based on in some aspects. It was also based on a book, and it was also based on um, some real-life murderer that um, William Friedkin knew on the, and he met on the set of The Exorcist, who was accused of a lot of these gay murders at one point. So it's, it's, it's all these different accumulations of things, um, a dying subculture, and uh, William Friedkin's uh, in relationship with a real killer, and then this book, Cruising. So it's all that into one, and that kind of explains the mystery of the killers in this movie. Um, the main killer in this movie, um, you know, the whole killing is broad. The killer always has the same voice, so it's like... It's really weird and hard to explain exactly, but super interesting at the same time, and it kind of reflects the real-life things that happen. I think it's a great movie. I think that the um, setting is perfect, that 80s you know, New York that so many people seem to be nostalgic for that never lived through it, myself included. I wouldn't even call it nostalgia. I'm just like, what a dirty, dirty place, but I like watching it on film. So there's that going for it, and there's this whole... 
deep layer of of all sorts of seedy, weird kind of things going through and mystery throughout the movie. I love the soundtrack. Not just the soundtrack, but the score in itself, I think, is very memorable. The opening of this movie has a really great scene, how it's shot with Gene Davis from stuff like 10 to Midnight, um, where he plays a transvestite kind of prostitute. And the way they do that shot is just great. Like uh, That whole scene happens and the car pulls up and it falls. I just thought that was really great. It's just well-made filmmaking. And and, uh, the unsung hero in this movie, I think, is Paul Servino, like um, Willie Freakin told him to play it with a great sadness, and he really does. Like you kind of almost, he, he seems like he used to be somebody who was full of life and very good person, but he's just so beaten down, and you can see it in his eyes. They actually give him these bags under his eyes, and he just looks so tired and so miserable, but also somewhat good natured at the time. And there's he gives this, and you know, there's that moment where you don't understand a character 100, percent but then they say a line, and you're like, okay, I get it, because he's the chief. He's got pressure on him. He's the chief of the detectives. He's got pressure on him from everybody above him to solve this case and Al Pacino is having some doubts and he says to him there's one day you know Al Pacino's upset that the wrong person got fingered for the crime and they were kind of drugged through the, the the grinder and he says something uh, Paul Servino says there's gonna you're gonna have to finger a dozen guys like that scared weird guys that don't know why they're being um, treat, treated like that it, it's not about you know and he just says that whole thing like it's not really about that it's just all these things you know kind of and that whole speech is just like I get this character much more than I did before and I appreciate that um, on the release like I said there's a com- the old commentary with Freakin there's a new commentary with Freakin and a moderator which I enjoyed where you get to hear you know Freakin wasn't the big a fan of Al Pacino. So, and Richard Gere was supposed to play that role originally. Interesting, good stuff. And then there's the old archival interviews, which involve, you know, the police that actually worked on the case that were uh, helped with the movie and some of the actors, you know, in the film as well. So I, I like that. Uh, Spinell, again, is, is a great performance. And I love, I love how it's shot in the club. You could tell it's just the craziest things are happening. They're just too good of actors, too good of acting to be actually acting in the movie to be honest so um very very good movie i don't want to say enjoyable because it is sleazy and dark and crazy but very interesting and i really like this movie if you want to go deep into this movie i suggest you listen to the projection booth podcast because they give this they go deep into it and they have i think they actually have an interview with the police detective on there too it's just really good stuff um really great release too looks really good and i think i remember people complaining that the dvd looked like it was um sucked of color and i don't feel like i thought this on the blu-ray because i had the DVD as well. So I thought it looked pretty good, but um, you know, what do I know? I'm just an idiot, right? But uh, sounded good, looked good, and uh, just a really interesting movie. Um, and I, I, my hat's off to Al Pacino for doing this role in 1980. Not a lot of people would have took it. How would you like to disappear? Disappear? Go undercover. You know this man? Who's here? I'm here. You're here. These victims are all the same physical type. What about him, Skip? Late 20s, 140, 150 pounds. Dark hair, dark eyes. Have you ever seen him before? I want to send you out there to see if you can attract this guy. How where? A New York City detective in search of a killer is about to disappear into the night. Is it dangerous? I can't talk about it. 
How do you know you're gonna end up the same person when it's over? An odyssey to the edge of city life. Bartenders are starting to give me some information. There's this uh, name keeps popping up all the time. There he is. The one with the hat. Is that the one that followed you? Yeah. Why didn't you go with him? I don't know. I think you should check him. If you want to play, I'll play with you. He's the wrong guy. Prince don't match. What he sees. Who's here? What he feels. I don't think I can do the job, Captain. I don't think I can handle it. This is stuff going down. I don't think I can. Uh, I can deal with it. Yes. Yes. You hear what he experiences. Yes. What he discovers will change his life forever. Al Pacino. Who's here? I'm here. You're here. Cruising. Okay, guys, the next one here is art from Artsploitation Films, fairly new flick. Um, this is Rondo. This is actually by the director of Murder Loves Killers 2, or Murder Loves Killers 2, or something like that. It's been a while since I've seen that movie, but yeah, Rondo. Um, this is kind of a small little thriller, um, kind of crime. I guess you'd say almost horror, because it goes in some pretty crazy places, but not necessarily horror. Uh, you know what? The whole way I could sum this movie up is like the filmmakers were like, hey, Remember Squibs? And they're like, yeah, I love Squibs. And then they're like, they made Rondo. So I don't mean that as an insult, because I love Squibs too myself. Can't get enough good Squibs. So, okay, this movie uh, follows the story of this um, ex-war uh, vet. He's an alcoholic. He lives with his sister. He's kind of the main character. And he ends up, uh, you know, going to the psychiatrist suggested by his sister to, you know, get things right. Just this kind of strange pregnant lady. So she tells him, you should go here. This is this weird sex thing, you know, anonymous sex with somebody. And it's fun. It's great. You'll dig it. So he's like, he's almost deadpan the whole time. He doesn't look like he has much of a soul left. So he does it. Of course, he shows up with a couple weird guys ready to, you know, have sex with some random stranger. They lay down all these rules in the most matter of fact way. And that character is just super bizarre. He's like, anal is encouraged. And it's just all the whole speech he gives and everything like that. You're just like, this is going to get real weird, real fast. And it does get real weird, real fast. And of course, you know, there's strings attached to this kind of anonymous, weird sex, uh, you know, being uh, told about it by a psychiatrist. So what happens is it appears to be some sort of murder ploy uh, deal and everything like that. So all these individuals are involved with it. Uh, he escapes, but I don't want to go into detail because there's a turn halfway through this movie that is uh, really different. But what happens is um, 
this whole you know this like this family unit his family unit decides to go after this uh group of weird kind of snuff sexual weird filmmaker deals i don't they're not filmmakers i don't want to say that because they're not making film they're making they're basically clients come to them with weird sexual desires and they fulfill them no matter how dark and twisted they are so they decide to kind of go in here and infiltrate and take them out and that's pretty much the story of the movie like i said it's not a very complicated story but it does have some interesting stuff in here the framing is really great um, they'll do like three level framing where you'll see a character on the bottom floor of a bill like uh, though somebody's on the roof in the foreground and then the mid ground you'll see behind is on the second floor opening balcony and then the the third ground is somebody coming out from the street so they'd use their framing really well they decided to take their time with their shots and it's appreciated because you don't see that often in a lot of independent movies that were run and gun kind of cheapy stuff so that is uh, much appreciated it adds a little layer to it the acting for the most part is decent it's not great it's not horrible there's some standouts um the lead baddie um, and the lead baddie's wife, they are both tremendous in the movie. I think they, they're probably the strongest acting in the movie. And also the father, the Vietnam uh, vet father is also really good in here. I think they probably give the strongest performances, but there's no real bad performances in the movie. Um, the gore is there. There's a couple really gory moments in here. Uh, when One of the characters that you really actually learn to like you don't like what happens to that person. It's pretty pretty dreadful. And, of course, at the very end of this movie, the centerpiece or the set, the main climax moment was Remember Squibs. And they decide to go to ridiculous levels so much that you see the squibs under the shirts everywhere. And uh, like they said in the commentary, their main inspiration for that was RoboCop. You know, Mr. Kenny or when he gets wasted by Ed 209. That's definitely what they were going for. So um, I appreciate a lot of things about this movie. I, I come a little above average because, you know, it, it's straightforward and... And, uh, and like that, but there's not many real plot holes in there at all. Um, and it, it, it's, it's a dark comedy as well. It's goofy and funny at, at places, and it has nice, you know, I guess you say composition or framing or whatever, how you ever want to put it. I think they did that really well. Uh, on here, there is a couple deleted scenes. I appreciate them deleted because I think the movie works quick, better at a short pace. I think it's worth checking out. Um, if, if you, this kind of sounds like it's up your alley. I won't compare it to that. What is that one weird movie that recently came out? with the wrestler and it's like a crime movie it's not exactly like that around that level but it's kind of similar to it i can't think i reviewed it um geez uh, my memory's going man but uh yeah this one decent decent watch for sure on um, the dvd i thought looked okay not perfect or anything but it's hard to tell after you watch so many blu-rays you put in a dvd and sometimes you can tell the difference sometimes you can't didn't they look poor um i thought it was worth checking out some quirky weird characters some splatter you know it's if that's what you were into then you'll enjoy this one Okay, this next one here is from a Conan Film Group, and this is uh, Girls of the Sun. Um, yeah, this uh, movie 
sounded pretty interesting. It's a, a war film with, uh, you know, female group centric, uh, female squad. Uh, this movie has like two storylines going on at once. We have this um, French reporter who wants to kind of, um, you know, cover this all female, uh, you know, troop of women that are fighting this um, basically ISIS like group. This movie is based on facts, but it is a, a fiction story. So we have that storyline with this. Um, you know, patch-eyed uh, female reporter diving into this story and experiencing wartime. She has a history of, you know, uh, I guess tragedy in her life as well. And, uh, you know, she's kind of dealing with some things and working her way through things. In the meantime, she uh, meets these uh, female warriors who are trying to take out ISIS and you realize how brave a lot of them are and how intense the war situation, of course, is. So throughout that, you hear backstories about pretty much predominantly one main character. And you hear her story and her you understand exactly why she's doing this. And you can't, you, you would side with her 100%. You want her to pull through. And you start to kind of, you know, relate or feel bad for a lot of the characters in here. And of course, they're going to go through war. So it keeps jumping back between these things. You see some of the characters get picked off, some of them killed. Um, the war scenes are pretty intense. I think some of it's really well done. Some of the explosions I thought were well done, and uh, the acting's really solid. I, I thought the lead was great. Um, I guess the the lead. I'm not saying the reporter she's good, but the the one who steals the show. I can't think of her actress's name right now, but she steals the show. I thought she did a tremendous job with, um, you know, her backstory, and she gets a lot of in depth stuff. But like I said, this isn't a true story, but it, it might as well be, from my understanding, is what they're saying. It's based on some things that actually happened, and they kind of changed some of the names and locations and whatnot. It's a very complicated you know situation a lot of these you know guerrilla warfare versus like fascist you know terrorist groups and everything like that and how the united states plays into it and then a reporter's mixed into it so it's very complicated to kind of describe that stuff you know when you have factions fighting factions and everything like that but you know seeing this woman escape there's a lot of suspense to it and, and you know I, I thought it was a, a well-made put together movie that i didn't really have any complaints for the only complaint is the movie doesn't have subtitles i know it has subtitles for when the person's speaking in a foreign language but or not english but it doesn't have for the english and you know i always like subtitles myself uh, on the release there is an interview um with the director she sits down and she has kind of a back and forth with one person and they talk about you know why she wanted to make this movie and what it's based on and all that kind of stuff and that was fairly interesting like i said it is a well-made kind of war movie and it's nice to see women in a war situation in a movie like i'm not saying yeah let's have, you know i love war and seeing people get killed and and it's just nice to see a side of a story that probably isn't told very often to be honest so i can't think of any you know realistic war movies with women as the helm of a, a group like that and there's a really great moment where um they kill one of the terrorists and she's standing over him and the phone rings and um she picks it up and he says is this is my brother where, where, where's my brother and she said he's dead and he says no he's not he's in heaven he says no i'm a woman and i killed him and you understand in that culture if a woman kills a man in that kind of situation he doesn't go to heaven he doesn't get the hundred virgins or whatever he he doesn't get to do that so it's just he doesn't get to go to paradise is what they call it so it's like hey yeah that's awesome i love that she has that mean streak in her for what they did to her and her family but good movie i thought it looked pretty good and sounded good no real complaints and there's a you know like i said some pretty gnarly explosions and visuals in the movie too Hello? Who is it? 
plus de 7000 femmes ont été capturées et gardées comme esclaves sexuelles. Plus de la moitié sont revenues dès les premiers mois en s'échappant ou en étant rachetées. Et certaines d'entre elles ont encore réussi à trouver le courage d'aller se battre. Comment t'en es venu à t'engager C'était ma seule chance de retrouver mon fils. Okay, guys, the next one here is Powers of Grayskull, the definitive history of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. This is a documentary that was sent to me to cover, and uh, this is the story of, you know, He-Man. It starts off early with uh, Mantel losing, you know, not doing Star Wars to Kenner, losing a bunch of money, wanting to develop the Conan store, the toy line, and passing on that because the rated R, and then kind of taking those designs to compete with the Star Wars uh, toy line and making Master of the Universe. It started as a toy line, it jumped, and then they made a comic, uh, and then they made a spin-off show, and then they made a t they made a TV series, then a spin-off show, and then they made. Um, a movie and then they made well they made a new show then they made a movie and then they made new toy comic lines new uh, characters new tv shows so this is goes through everything okay so when i was i was born in 86 so this was all a little before my time my brother had the toys so i grew up with the toys always loved the toys always interested in the story and everything like that but i love the movie to death um on here this has interviews with you know like i said people who developed the story of the comic book people who did the toy designs on there so there's a lot going for it also it has people People interview with the movies, fans, voice actors, all sorts of things in here. So, yeah, it is pretty definitive to be honest. So, if you're interested in Master Universe, you should really dig this one. And I was, so I enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, it tells the whole story, like I said, and people coming in and people dropping out, executives at Mentel, and it's just—it's very interesting to see where this whole you know line of characters went and how it developed into this story and what we know as Masters Universe. Um, my favorite part clearly was when they did the interview with uh, Franklin Gill and Dolph Lundgren because I love the the '87 Masters Universe. I know it's not a great Masters Universe movie, but it is a very entertaining fantasy sci-fi movie, and I saw it very young, so I love it. I don't know if that's the only reason. I think it is interesting. I know it's a Star Wars ripoff, but I love it. It's kind of fitting because they were trying to compete with Star Wars in the toy line. So, hey, whatever. So, um, anyways, on the release, I don't think the Blu-ray and DVD, but I don't think there's many interviews on there, any special features. So, seeing, you know, Dolph Lundgren talk about it and Frank Langella, who I absolutely love. And I think he turns in one of the best villain performances ever. And the way he talks about it, it's like almost basically just an interview for a supplement that they would make nowadays for Master Universe. So, 
him talking about it is just wonderful. He's a totally underrated actor too. When he appears in uh, the, Dra- the the Dracula movie or Brain Scan or Dave, he's just a really good actor and he's completely solid. And he played Skeletor to a T. So seeing his insight on playing the character just made me very happy. Also seeing Dolph Lundgren made me very happy. And you know, I always kept up with it. It was one of these weird things about Masterpiece that I always kept up with. Like, what kind of toys are they making now? So I'd always look at the new toy line, and they were always so much awesome toys and everything like that. So, and the new show I watched too. So seeing where this exactly came from and why it got made, and is this the first actual toy line that was a uh, TV show was made into a play into it and stuff like that? They had a toy line that they made a TV show and a comic book for, basically to feed this toy line. Which a lot of people would say that is complete rubbish and garbage. But at the same point, it's also super interesting to see that. Um. I really thought this documentary was interesting and it kept my attention the entire time and I never was bored. And there's a lot of history with this franchise and all the stuff in this IP. So I would highly recommend checking this out, especially if you're interested in 80s toys or 80s TV shows or, you know, just kind of how these things come together or Master Universe, of course. You know, I always love it. And they even go to how it got named. Originally, they were going to do like Lords of Power or something like that. And then the guy was like, that sounds like a religious thing. And I don't think that's a good idea. Let's go Masters of the Universe. And believe or not an executive made a great call right there masters of the universe it just sounds freaking awesome but uh you know it's just something that i've been interested in so when i got the chance to check it out i was i was super happy too so yeah um enjoyable stuff here and in depth too i don't know what would be missing like i said they have voice actors on here the voice of skeletor some of the people didn't want to partake of course you know the director of mass universe and the voice actor of he-man just really doesn't do this kind of stuff so yeah um but you know like i said they they cover a lot of it and it's kind of like the documentary i watched about you know nintendo being made. It's similar to that, but with Master of the Universe. So I check it out for sure. Here's the band. Here's the hero. Here's the template. When they took the figures out, these kids just went bats. They just went crazy. Everyone thought, this is ridiculous. It's never going to be a hit. Between 82 and 87, He-Man represented roughly 95% of all the growth in the toy division. And suddenly, He-Man became, you know, this billion-dollar empire. So we were frantically designing vehicles and accessories for He-Man. But it was going to be this toy. <laughs> now it's a big deal to play a toy or play a superhero. All the kids were raising the sword in there by the power of Skull. I really worked hard to try to find an original way to be that sort of cliché. When he messes, I have the power, it's saying to the kids, you don't have to do what you're told anymore. You can be your own person. When you first heard the name, it was so macho and so male chauvinistic. I said, no, you can never. I mean, that will never work. These are two of the earliest drawings that were ever done of He-Man. So this is a, a pen and ink version of Castle Grayskull. They had a bunch of characters designed, guys with muscles that have come ripping out of the forest and wreak havoc someplace. Uh, I told them we would be interested in doing it if we had total creative control. I sort of figured a way to write above their level and at their level at the same time, which makes the the stories kind of have some lasting shelf value. What was timely about it was hitting at exactly the moment to break open a whole new market, but to transform television and created an opportunity for all kinds of shows. 
by the power of Grayskull. I have the power! <laughs> yeah, you can do that stuff with his eyes. Does need another take. Humans have a hunger for heroes. It's an idealized way of dealing with the real world. It was pretty, it was pretty sad because it could have gone on forever. Okay, the first Patreon pick we have is from Dustin Mills, and this is Giver 2, Dark Hero. By the director of the first Giver, Stephen Lang. I think that's his name, is it Stephen? Not Stephen Lang, geez, Stephen, oh, gee, I'm going to look, I'm going to cheat. I make mistakes. Stephen Wang. Uh, Stephen Lang from, from Tombstone directed Guyver 2? Okay, so here we go. This was made in the early 90s. If you guys aren't familiar with Guyver, it was like a, a manga, and it was an anime, uh, two anime shows, and then there was a movie made in, I think, the late 80s, early 90s that I watched a billion times as a kid. Very entertaining movie. It had David Gale and Michael Berryman and Mark Hamill in it, and it was kind of a kid-friendly, almost kid-friendly kind of Power Rangers, but a little bit more violent. Zoonoid monsters fighting super suit kind of show uh, movie but enjoyable the sequel was definitely r-rated it felt like it was a sci-fi movie to be honest made for sci-fi and it might have been to be honest even though it's a news new uh new line movie um i always enjoyed this one as well and this is one of these ones that i probably saw on the sci-fi channel originally after i watched or i might have rented it too because i liked the guyver so much but it feels like it's something that played on the sci-fi channel quite a bit okay what we have here is a new actor not the original one playing guyver and he kind of can't control after the zoonoids were destroyed in the first one he's kind of you know can't you know sit still the guyver unit needs to defend so it goes out at night it forces him to go out at night it's a super you know alien bio armor that comes out when he's in danger or when he needs to you know stop violence so he's he's kind of a batman character he's haunted he must prevent crime but instead of batman you know not killing people the guyver unit must kill so the opening movie he kills a bunch of baddies he can't control himself and then he sees this archaeological dig site on television and he recognizes some of the imagery from his dreams because this um alien um you know bio suit came from space so it has this weird kind of thing these dreams and everything like this uh archaeological like i guess they call them pictographs on the walls of you know old ancient stuff so he sees that stuff he decides to drive down there and at the same time there's these kind of weird monster attacks happening werewolf attacks so he's like zoonoids so he goes down there and starts to get involved with it and he, there's a, this things ran by an old man and his daughter and then there's these weird executives overhead of it and he starts to do some Lear, you know, sneaking around. There's monster attacks happening, and there's also a government agent there, and he realized that Kronos is involved. They're running the archaeological dig site. What's in there is a giant spaceship, and there's another Giver unit in there. So he does not want the Zoonoids to get the Giver unit. <laughs> this sounds insane, guys, doesn't it? But what ensues is I know it's almost two hours long, but it's pretty entertaining throughout. The lead's not a great actor, okay? The acting in this is a little bit shaky throughout, but what, what shines in here is the fight scenes are pretty decent. 
although they do have one of the major fight scenes in water, so it slows them down dramatically, which is probably not a great idea. But I'm just surprised what they could do on a budget in the early 90s compared to what they can do on a budget for the same price. It feels like they did so much stuff here really cool. I don't know if Screaming Mad George did the effects, but he did the effects in the first one, and they're great. And it looks like they reused some of the ones from the first one in here. But the Zoinoids look really good as well. Um, and it's the first time we get kind of introduced to a Greggle-like character. Greggle was the one in the original anime that he fights first, the big Korean guy. Although this one, he's more like a porcupine werewolf, but I think he's equivalent to him. And that is one of the coolest designs a Zoinoid ever had. And he is the one they think is a werewolf. It's gory in here when the Zoinoid attacks uh, people. And the fight scenes are really fun and awesome at the same time. Like, I'm surprised at what they pull off on the budget. And um, the leader of the Zoonoids, um, you know, he wants that Guyver unit for a reason. So think about it. Um, and at the end of the movie, gory, there's a meltdown without giving too much away, which I already probably had. But his Zoonoid creature design looks so good. And I'm watching stuff like Shape of Water, which is an excellent movie. And I'm like, the effects in Guyver 2, to me, look just as impressive as they do in Shape of Water, if not more. That monster at the end with the kind of, you know, amphibious look. I think he would have been a cooler monster in those movies. So, um, I really would recommend checking this out if you like Guyver 1 and you've never seen Guyver 2, or if you just check both of them out. The first one's more kid-friendly. This one's definitely R. It's gorier. Um, you know, Guyver has the blade on his end. He kills people. He kills Zoonoids. Um, just a cool movie, and I wish we would have got more Guyver movies, to be honest. I like both the animes as well. It's just a cool IP that I think is totally not dug into enough it's cool stuff and uh you know guyver 2 dark hero you know great low budget sci-fi action movie for sure it's been a year since i first became the guyver unit and destroyed the chronos corporation and their shape-changing killers the zoonoids but the guyver stays in calling me to fight to kill Hero. And don't forget, the original Guyver is now available for $19.95. The Guyver's return on investment is 89%, which is twice the average sci-fi rental return. The Guyver 2 Dark Hero promises a 90-day pay-per-view window and delivers more monsters, more non-stop martial arts action, and more incredible morphing special effects. The Guyver 2 Dark Hero. I know my job. Let her go. Only from New Line Home Video. 
Okay, guys, the next one is another Patreon pick, and this is Near Dark. I have the DVD and the Blu-ray release. I opened this Blu-ray release to watch this, and it was worth like 80 bucks sealed. But I'm not going to sell it, so it doesn't matter. Near Dark, a 1987 vampire movie by Catherine Bigelow. It's her second feature film after The Loveless, which I reviewed probably a month ago back. This movie has a cult following. Of course, it was uh, overshadowed when it came out by The Lost Boys 87 as well. It has a nice little cast as Adrian Pastar, Jenny Wright from Young Guns 2 and I, Madman, underrated actress. And it also, well, in those movies she is. And it also has, you know, kind of heavies, Jeanette Goldstein, uh, Bill Paxton, and Lance Hendrickson, and Joshua Miller. The first three that I made named there were from Aliens, of course, and Joshua Miller, you know, made a staple in an 80s movie being a prick kid, like in class of 1999. And what else is he in? He's in so many movies where I just wanted to punch him in the face so hard. Uh, geez, there's another one that's on the tip of my tongue. Oh, River's Edge. So yeah, he's in a bunch of stuff, and he's great in this movie. So this is um, a contemporary West Western vampire horror flick. So, yeah, that's kind of a strange plot. Love story, I should say, contemporary vampire love story, Western love story. So, yeah, kind of strange. Um, the first thing I noticed really rewatching this one, I, I've always liked this movie. I just never loved it as much as a lot of other people, to be honest. Um, I think visually it's, it's astonishing. I think visually it's probably, you know, its strongest point in this movie. I love how it looks. I think it looks damn good. I think that the wide shots are great. The atmosphere is great. The mixture of, you know, these genres and tones is pretty cool. I think some of the dialogue's a little cheesy at points because it's played completely straight and a lot of it, you know, just, remember we started that fire, Jesse? I'm just like, okay, we get it, the Chicago fire. But it's just like, and it's cool to add this, you know, history and a lot of people like it, but at times I'm like, ooh, that just doesn't land as right anymore as it used to. Tim Thomerson's also in the movie, and it's probably one of Tim Thomerson's most solid roles. He always comes across a little cheesy to me, and I don't think that is a bad thing. I think sometimes it really works, it's really fun, but in this one, I think he comes across as a realistic father looking for his kid. So, Adrian Pestar, or Pestar, um, gets bit by Jenny Wright, kind of in an accidental thing, and um, he doesn't realize that Jenny Wright is part of this vampire clan that's been living for hundreds of years, traveling, you know, the western, uh, you know, western United States, killing and maiming everything to survive, and for fun. They're kind of anarchist you know kind of deal so he gets drug into this life and he is forced to you know assimilate or die so his family comes looking for it complicates things and he's trying to you know survive as long as he can but he's also in love and he doesn't want to kill so that's what we have kind of going on like i said the score is by tangerine dream and i bet the score is even it's good it works well for the movie but i bet it's even better by itself because it's a really good score and really unique and it has these you know really like kind of like you know atmospheric moments and then it will do the pulse pounding when the action starts the gore in here is really good there's some good action set pieces of course and some really i i you know iconic moments in here uh bill paxton's got a lot of one-liners i love bill paxton bill paxton is pretty great in this movie he's hammering it up but it's perfect in this one like some of the dialogue's cheesy but most of bill paxton stuff lands really well and uh the stuff he says in here one of the lines is fasten your fucking seatbelt you know i always liked bill paxton i always thought he was really fun and he's definitely chewing the scenery in here irp bill paxton is severin he's great in it as well like i said it's got some really cool moments and gory moments and i do think it, it should have been more popular when it came out you know it's probably it's got some recognition which is great great to hear I do think it should be have been more popular when it came out, unfortunately. I, I love The Lost Boys, too. So, But, you know, I think that this is probably... 
you know, one of a kind movie, to be honest, once I'm thinking about it, to have that kind of 80s, you know, Tangerine Dream score, but also be a Western and a vampire movie and a love story. It's just like, there's nothing really like this movie. So you got to give it props there, to be honest. I, I would definitely check this one out if you guys haven't seen it. Um, Jonathan Wilhelm picked this one. So I was I was happy to revisit. It's been a while, to be honest. On the release, there is a uh, commentary with Catherine Bigelow, which is nice. And uh, there also is, you know, a kind of making of like with the four, with the, uh, interviews with, you know, the director and uh, Bill Paxton uh, everybody a lot of people involved with the movie um i think that you know like i said the acting in a lot of the characters is really good josh miller is really great in this movie and so is bill paxton and uh i, I don't want to be a dick but the weakest link is probably adrian pastar because his character it's more his character it's kind of like that you know craig schaefer and nightbreed where you have all these interesting monsters in the side and then you're like we got this guy he's just very plain and it's the same thing in near dark we have these weird kind of intense acting performances and then we have you know this this guy so I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm dogging on him, but that's just kind of a point in the movie. So um, I, I also, you know, it's one of these things where you're watching a movie and you register it mentally, but you don't really, you know, remember it. And like, you know, right in the beginning of this movie, it just shows a mosquito getting bit by somebody, biting someone. You know, like, it's such as like obvious there, and but you never remember it. And I was just like, there's a lot of stuff in here like that. So um, good movie, good movie for sure. You know, definitely underseen when it came out. I'm glad it got appreciation it deserves. Although, you know, I don't love it as much as a lot of people, but I do appreciate the hell out of it. Okay, this next one here is from, uh, what is his name? Uh, it's, it's the fake name here. It's directed by Martin Herbert, but that's not the case. This is a 1976 movie, same year as Alice, Sweet Alice. This is by Albert DiMartino, who did uh, The Antichrist, which is an exorcist ripoff. It's a ridiculous movie. But yeah, this is Shadows in an Empty Room. 
That title is ridiculous. Okay, this movie right here stars Stuart Whitman from, you know, Light of the Leapers, Ruby, uh, White Buffalo, uh, John Saxton from Tenebrae, Cannibal Apocalypse, Nightmare on Elm Street, a million other movies, uh, Tisa Farrow from Zombies, Zombie Holocaust, Fingers, and uh, who else is in here? Martin Lando from The Bean and Ed Wood. So it's got a nice little cast in here. Those four are pretty much the most recognizable actors in the movie. So I was like, okay, we're into this one. This follows the story of a, a, a college he's on a college campus and this girl is poisoned and uh, her brother is a detective older brother is Stuart Whitman the detective and he comes into town and he must have loved his sister had a shaky relationship with her because he's out there to prove something his partner is John Saxon there's a doctor on campus named Martin Lando who may or may not be involved with the death so he starts to dig deeper realizes that there's some sort of weird kind of thing involving this uh, jewelry theft and stuff and people start to end up dead and that's pretty much the plot of the movie but what's in here is a lot of crazy action set pieces that seem huge and seem big budget like it's almost like they're like Martino you're going to make this uh, Albert Mar D. Martino you're going to make this you know nice little thriller movies like i want action damn it please procedural and he just takes these set pieces and he explodes them to ridiculous levels um stuart whitman is probably history's most uh, fascist cop i've ever seen he makes charles bronson look you know reasonable and like stuff like stone killer not necessarily but they're about the same like stuart whitman's no charles bronson but he's like i guess he's like harnessing charles bronson like crooked cop kind of stuff in here like stone killer but he just punches everybody in the face this movie is ridiculous there's no logical he never stuart whitman's a cop who breaks all the rules and never has any repercussions for his actions. It's the 70s, baby. It's, you know, those, uh, police, it's not really a police at that scene, but I guess it kind of is because it has giallo element. It has a whole bunch of stuff going in there. Okay, like I said, Stuart Whitman is just a horrible person, a horrible cop. And then there's kind of an interesting thing with this character where he has to realize his sister may not be who he thinks she is. And that's kind of neat. But, um, <laughs> the whole movie makes me laugh because he's after this guy to ask him questions, but he has a 45 minute epic car chase where people are almost killed every second and thousands of dollars of the damage just to ask him some questions and afterwards he's like see ya and it's just like okay um the craziest scene in this whole entire movie has to be when he um uh, one of the people who's murdered is a transsexual they they're involved with the case somehow i don't want to give too much away but he's like uh, you know, he actually goes and asks a bunch of other transsexuals questions to find out who possibly could be missing. And instead of, you know, knocking on the door and explaining who he is, he sneaks in illegally and he just starts to fight these women or these men who are in drag, these, uh, cross-dressing. And there's these epic fight scenes. Um, one actually throws him off a balcony and he's about to die. And, uh, it just gets to the point where he uses a soldering iron, maybe in a place where you really shouldn't. Um, and it's just absolutely ridiculous and inappropriate and and I just couldn't be like, I was just like, oh my God, what is going on? Who okayed this movie? I mean, like in uh, stuff like a Dario Argento, there'd always be like a homosexual character who's like, hey, just like art gallery guy who's over the top. And this, it's just like the most outrageous thing ever. I mean, it's like an Andy Serdaris movie, but just violent and like fighting in there. Like I just to the point where I'm like, oh my God, why is this happening? It, it is almost funny because it's so ridiculous, but at the point you have to roll your eyes. John Saxon plays John Saxon in this one. I love John Saxon, one of my favorites, and he always does it such a, he always delivers such a professional, serious performance. And this one, he no different. He's really good in it, but he's just him. You know, he's kind of, you know, uptight, <laughs> not affected by his partner's horrible actions. Martin Lando's creepy. But he does it well. So, like, it, it's fine. Tisa Ferro plays a blind uh, woman and it, it plays into one of the scares, suspense moments, and stuff like that. 
Uh, it has a lot of those tropes, like, you know, it's just a mismatch of, like, genres, police procedural, Polizio Tetsi, Giallo, horror movie, it's all that kind of stuff mixed in there. It's definitely watchable, it's big, it has a lot of crazy things happening in it, really great car chase, that car chase is tremendous, the fight scenes are tremendous, and I, I get the impression that Stuart Whitman can actually fight, because it seems like he's doing more stunts than you'd expect, and it looks like he knows what he's doing to a certain extent, so I would recommend checking it out if you're in the mood for something wild and crazy. Have you ever been alone in an empty room and suddenly had the strange sensation that someone or something was there with you? Who's there? Remember the icy chill? Who's there? The stab of panic? I know someone's in here. The gripping fear you felt? Now, prepare to experience it all again. American International presents Strange Shadows in an Empty Room. The story of an innocent young girl, tormented by a terror she could not see. A cold, sadistic presence that seemed to lurk in every corner. Who was it? What was it? Why did it haunt her? Strange Shadows in an Empty Room. A nerve-shattering excursion into a blind girl's nightmare. Where nothing is what it seems, no one can be trusted. And every shadow takes the shape of evil. Enter at your own risk. Walk with her if you dare. Every step will bring you closer, closer, closer to the brink of unimaginable terror. Strange shadows in an empty room. There are some things only the blind can see and only the dead can feel. Don't close your eyes for a second because what you can't see can kill you. No! No! Stuart Whitman. John Saxon. Martin Landau, Gail Honeycutt, Tisa Farrow. Strange Shadows in an Empty Room. Okay, the next Patreon pick I watched on Amazon Streaming, and this is from Jason Willard. It is 1978's Born Invincible. I didn't know much about this movie. Um, the first thing I want to say right now before I forget is I noticed some sound cues that are probably public domain that are used in uh, Dawn of the Dead, some sound cue music cues, and I was like, oh my god, that's the stuff in Dawn of the Dead. I also noticed that in Ilsa one time, a sound cue from Dawn of the Dead, because I've seen Dawn of the Dead so many times. But there's sound cues that are like a music little like mon motif that is in Dawn of the Dead that's in born invincible 1978 oh jeez, i don't even know how to go about this one this movie's wild and weird and crazy as well we have these uh martial arts guys who are training and uh some of the students see that these two asshole guys are you know picking on this woman and this old man and they shouldn't step in because it's against the rules but they step in anyways and what happens because of it is a giant blood feud um the bad guys go tell their you know bosses they lose somebody doing this the uh, students and then the bad guys go tell the bosses what happened the boss 
bosses show up and they want the old man from the dojo. And then the senseis of the, t- the kids doesn't want to give them up. So a bunch of people start to get killed. And the main bad guy has this weird martial arts practice where you got to find his weak spot and his weak spot will change in between his movements and you got to put immense stress on him. And the whole movie is them trying to figure out his weak spot and take out these two bad guys who are super badasses and they have their own unique special talents and everything like that. So it's a bunch of people training and then going and fighting him and then getting hurt and then you know getting better or not and then it's just a nonsensical movie the fight scenes are awesome they incorporate weapons and they're really cool and i think some of that stuff's super complicated and i'm like i don't how the hell are they doing that like there's this one characters that have this long stick and they separate the stick and they attack them separate then they'll connect it and go at them and people are doing flips and they're rolling over each other um pretty violent people get killed lots of uh, death scenes and everything like that the bad guys get what they deserve i really liked it it was really enjoyable although um at times hard to follow where it's like i'm gonna go take them out i'm injured or i'm dead and now i'm his other guy and you get mixed up with some of the characters i'm gonna be honest i didn't remember all the characters perfectly well the bad guys all stand out but recommended to check out if you like martial arts movie it, it, martial arts movies and cool fight scenes because the fight scenes are awesome and that's really the highlight of these movies i would recommend checking it out it's born invincible cool stuff man
Hey guys, what's up? We're here to talk about something a little special. We're here to talk about our friend Dustin Mills' movie Slaughterhouse Slumber Party. I don't want to be like, we're definitely biased here, for yeah. sure. Um, this is Dustin Mills' new movie. We uh, donated to the Kickstarter and we got our copy, so we checked it out and watched it. And uh, I told you before, I'm, I'm very, very biased here because I've watched Dustin's, all his movies from the very beginning and I've worked with him and I've worked with a, a bunch of the actresses in this movie and I know a lot of the other ones personally. So saying that, uh, I loved it. Uh, what'd you think of it? Um, I, I did really like it. I loved it too. It's comedic gold. I think it might be Dustin's best movie. I think it actually is too. Okay. The plot of this, he originally, I think what he wanted to do with this movie was kind of like do a throwback to the Jim Wynorski kind of slumber party like TNA movies, but just give it like more substance, even though those movies are funny, but somehow this movie is comedic and hilarious, but all the characters have depth and substance. And it's like the perfect combination of, you know, a skin flick, but it's way better than that. It's absolutely hilarious it has a lot of character dynamics. They have setups and payoffs and um, over-the-top kind of special effects, you know, CGI and practical. Marcus mm -hmm. Cook worked on this movie, who's, you know, big in the indie underground horse scene. And he also, you know, had a little cameo in there. Yeah, he does. The plot of this movie is a group of girls who hang out, get together every year, and they just, you know, chick out, girl out, whatever. You know, the equivalent to, you know... Dude's nude night out, ladies night out, basically. Yeah. So they stay, and they all have these like big personalities, and of course something weird happens. They have a new person that comes along, and this ancient evil curse. She's uh, you know what? She's studying the occult, and mm -hmm. she dies, and all hell breaks loose. That's pretty much the plot of the movie. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The the what's her name? Gretchen. I forget Gretchen, the yeah. uh, actress's name. Uh, Ania Lupa. She's yeah. in um. The one slit face woman that... Uh, she, okay, yeah, but the... Yeah, yeah she's right. in that. And she's in uh, some Henry Cotto movies. She's tremendous in this movie. She's, she's absolutely hilarious. This movie has a kind of a, you know... I don't want to call it a gag, but a, a structure thing where all the characters will basically talk directly at the camera as if they're on like a Big Brother type show. Just so you can get into their psyche almost. Right. And so you get to know little interesting quirks about the characters instead of doing like an inner monologue it's almost like an interview inner monologue with all the characters and it's just wonderful and all the characters have different interactions with each other there's love stories in here and there's a, a way he kind of made the picture so dustin always kind of does this kind of thing where he'll poke fun not necessarily at the audience all the time but he knows what the critics will say about his work and what they've said about his work so he you know, I don't want to say like like Dario Gentu because Dario Gentu does this too. But with Tenebrae, he knows or Tenebrae. I always say it wrong, and people are always like, "You're not saying it right." And I say Dario's name wrong too. I don't care. So I talk. Got a speech impediment. Leave me alone. But um, he, um, like Dario, basically what he does is he made fun of the critics on Tenebrae. The author in the book was, you know, kind of making a statement 
in the book, he writes violent things and he gets criticized for it. So then basically he's always being criticized like Dario was criticized for his violence in movies. And then he comes out and says that's bullshit, but then it's kind of not bullshit, so it's crazy to think mm-hmm. like that. And Dustin kind of does that with here. The One of the characters played by Aaron Ryan, uh, you know, Dustin Mills regular, Dayton regular, uh, great actress she uh is obsessed with horror movies she's obsessed with this character i can't remember her name it's like foxy rocket foxy rocket or something rocket rocket something yeah and she's like a a pretty much a a low-level b-movie actress that makes really hammy cheesy movies with you know uh they said crummy cgi and whatnot Mm. and that's kind of like her heart and soul and that comes into play. It plays a major part into the movie, which is really fun. And it incorporates some fun one-liners, which actually, you know, makes sense in the movie. So Yeah. Um, yeah, all, all the actresses in it, um, I a lot of them I know, like, in real life. And then, like, like for some, like, I've never really interacted with, like, Ronnie or yeah, a handful I, of them. Yeah, but well, everybody did, like, phenomenal. Even, like, the, the people, yeah. you know, because, like... You would think maybe I'm predispositioned to be like, well, I like these people in real life, so I'm going to like them in the movie. But yeah. even the characters that... I like, didn't know personally or well were great. The cast yeah. is great. It has a bunch of regulars in indie movies. Mm-hmm. Um, Haley J. Madison, Aaron Ryan, Ronnie Jonah, um, Regan Root. She's in some of Dustin's movies. Um, Elise Winkler. Uh, right. Who else is in here? Like I said... Uh, and then Lupa, oh jeez, uh, there's an Eve, uh, I can't think of her name, she's a newcomer, she plays Dolores, the librarian. The librarian, she and was She's great. hilarious. At one point, she has some of the best lines in here, where she's like shy around the new girl, and she's like, I'm only one titty drunk. <laughs> and of course, Kayla Elizabeth's in here okay, as well, uh, so mm-hmm. everybody in here is tremendous. If I missed anybody, I was very impressed with the um, you know ensemble cast of like the nine girls. I thought they all did a tremendous job. In the movie, and and all, and all the different characters have like different relationships and dynamics. Yeah, like, like, there's yeah, like definitely I said, chemistry, and, and there's and, payoffs and everything yeah. like that. But uh, there's a there's a turn in here, which I don't want to spoil too much. But all the characters have like their you know moments where they get to talk to the camera, mm-hmm. and uh, halfway, like almost more than halfway through, they do kind of a gag in there where one of the characters gets to talk. Um, and kind of like a monster kind of deal. I thought that was great. Um, mm-hmm. She kind of reminded me of uh, Gretchen after she becomes kind of the protagonist of the movie. Before she's great and she's just like dead and right. says really awkward things and just interactions are hilarious. But she becomes kind of like a Beetlejuice Freddy Krueger character yeah. and she's hilarious. Yeah, and she, you know, she's fun. You know, she's punny. She's, you know, she she, she has fun little kills that she does with everyone. And I don't know. Like I said, I'm getting more emotional in my old age. But there's mm-hmm. a point where one of the characters uh, says something about you know what one of the other characters loves when they're kind of facing that and. It's it's written to a T where I was starting to get teary eyed because it you know it hits home to a certain point in there, and uh, knowing Dustin and knowing some of these actresses, we're seeing some of the movies they played in. Um, he plays to their strengths really well. Yeah, he and does. I don't know, I can't speak on the actresses I don't know very well or the people in the movie that I don't know well, but some of them I know decently. I've been in, like I said, and their personalities come out like that and. I'm not saying they're these people, but he plays to the, and he writes to their personalities so where you get amazing performances out of almost pretty much, I'd say all of them, mm-hmm. but um, there's just so many good one-liners in here, quotable stuff here, I'm not gay, and right. stuff like that. It's just, it had me laughing hysterically, and uh, just Haley J. Madison, you gotta give her an extra oh, spot, yeah. because her character is like almost like the heart and soul of a big chunk of this movie, and she's just yeah, so she funny. De- she definitely is. I, like, I'm... I don't know if I'd call her the main character, but, like... One of them. Yeah, she... Yeah, I'd say her, Kayla, and, and Aaron. Aaron are probably, like, the three central. But everybody else has, like, 
like more of an adequate screen time. Like there isn't any like, hey, I'm in the character or I'm in, I'm in the the thing for like three minutes. Like everybody has like a yeah, scene. everybody's got good scenes and good yeah. lines in here. Like the I'm only one titty drunk, with, right? And then the uh, eyes like shark. Um, this is the most scared I've ever been. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Or um, I'm never alone in that day. Character. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the lines were so funny. They were like they're. Like, I don't want to say it, but they're, like, better than so many of the comedy lines that get quoted in movies now. I mean, those lines are funny and stuff, too. But I can see, like, if this got to, like, a bigger audience, I could see it really taking off. And I think it oh, deserves yeah. to. I mean, I will admit I'm not the biggest fan of CGI. Everybody right. knows that. But this movie's tone is almost so playful and fun that you don't even notice the CGI. And it's not poor CGI. It's, like, a cartoonish, fun CGI that goes right. along with the tone of the movie. And they set it up in the very opening of the movie with the um, fake movie and there and the CGI is over the top. Mm-hmm. They make he, This is the second time he's used that joke with the, um, you guys want some Halloween costume skeletons or something like that with the CGI. So he uses that, I think, in, what is it, Zombie A-Hole, he says that? I think or, he says uh, Josh that. Eel's character says that. So it's, yeah. like... There's a lot of Dustin isms in here, but I've grown to love that, and I, I've actually always loved it, even before I know Dustin. Right. So this is one of his strongest efforts for sure. And like an indie filmmaker should, or like any filmmaker should, he he shows growth, and and they always get better. Usually, yeah, yeah. they, they yeah, always they, get better. They have been getting better, and even if they're different, like uh, something I'm not a genre I won't like as much. Mm-hmm. It's still I see improvements in certain aspects. Yeah, absolutely, I completely agree, and like. It's refreshing to see, I think, something like this being made versus seeing something more like um, like the Torment focus that he had. And, I mean, yeah. I like the Torment they're movies. They're dark, though. But, you know, they're, they're dark. And, like, you know, I, I know Dustin. Dustin's a lovable guy. And it's it's just nice to see something a bit more... Fun. Yeah, like, yeah, fun. More, I think fun. more true to him. And yeah. and, yeah, it was a really good, well, great movie. The thing is, also, about this one, it's nice to see a group of... Uh, I, there's a lot of movies where like a lot of female characters don't get to be funny like yeah. they and he wrote perfect form and they delivered the lines perfect they made it their own and they're all hilarious oh yeah they're, they're I loved great. it I thought it was great um, and I'd mm-hmm. like to see more of these yeah, I'd watch a bunch of these um, it's not available right now to buy uh, they, all the Kickstarter stuff got sent out and um, so you know it'll probably be popping up for sale and everything like that and uh, when I know you guys will know but I'm glad to have my copy and I will check it out and watch it on the, on the release I think there's a uh, the couple of the Kickstarter videos and everything like that and then there is like uh, the pillow fight it has the typical kind of slumber party movie stuff you would see mm-hmm. uh, you know girls naked running around hitting each other with pillows oh I also forgot uh, Melissa uh, Susan here too is the hippie oh I yeah. About, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah they're all really f- she uh, has some great lines in here what's the one line that she says that cracked me up where she was like uh, oh jeez I can't remember it's like during the thing where the, the beads kind of start floating oh I can't I can't think but anyways she's great everybody had their moment everybody was Mm -hmm. great in it and uh, I'm happy that it was made and I hope that people see it and um, give it the proper love I think it deserves and you know like I said I am biased and I'll admit that but hey I wasn't involved with this movie at all so there's that I was disclaimer I I made the book you made the little book in there similar to the Halloween Spookies book you made yeah I like making books I'm cutting you out of this then why I like books I'm cutting you out of the review. Oh, yeah, just put, like, a censored bar over me. I'm just going to put one of those, like, uh, deep voice things like they do in the prison shows. Like, like, like backlight me. Yeah, like, yeah, and, like, but, and, like, distort your voice. <laughs> Even though I'll try to make it deeper, it'll just be, like, the same. Like, I <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think the computer would actually modulate it that low. Um, uh, well, we're out of here, guys. All right, bye. Hammer time. For all who are willing to pay the price... 
We invite you to go through the mirror of life. All right, guys, it's time. It's hammer time. That wasn't loud. I don't want it to be loud. Oh, yeah. All right, <laughs> regardless, um, this is, what is this one? 1963's Old Dark House, and this is one of the weirdest hammer productions again, kind of like Shadow of the Cat, which people will be like, is that a hammer movie? Because this one I would definitely question, is it a hammer movie? This is actually a William Castle hammer co-production. And you can tell by the cast, it's all British, except the lead is an American-American character. So, mm-hmm. William Castle was pretty much, a, you know, I guess they say a B-movie director, but he has a huge cult status because he did a lot of, you know, popular horror movies. The Tingler, House on Haunted Hill, Straight Jacket. Very capable director. So, um, One Dark House, okay. This is um, a remake of the 1932 James Whale movie. James Whale did Bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein, and um, The Invisible Man. So, pretty famous uh, universal horror director. This is a remake make his movie not seen the original but from my understanding the original is much more serious this is a farce this is a spoof this is an incredibly goofy movie yeah um yeah th- i don't even know how to go along saying explaining this one but the cast is pretty much filled with all people that are recognizable to a certain extent they're mm-hmm. all very funny and a lot of them play it straight we have um the premiere from um he's the ambassador ambassador from, from well, dr strange yep. love yeah he's um, in here he plays two roles. He plays two roles. He's amazing. And then we have uh, the guy who played, uh, I just can't remember his actual name, but he plays uh, Sherlock Holmes' brother in A Study of Terror. He's in this as one of the best characters as well. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the, we have the lead is actually from Cold Turkey is what I recognized him from. And he has a face that kind of reminds me of Rodney Dangerfield, but skinny or like a... He reminds, his face looks like John Wayne to me, but no. I can't recognize faces, so you're going to have to go with... Yeah, I think he know. looks like skinny Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. But essentially what we have here is a car salesman is kind of talked into going with his only friend. They have this weird arrangement. His friend is um, the guy from Dr. Strangelove, where he stays in this apartment during, at night, and the, uh, um, the ambassador, I'll call him that from now on, his name is actually Casper, uh, stays in the um, apartment during the day. And we find out why. Basically, he has to go back to this old dark house, and the, the whole family has to live there, or they won't get some inheritance. So there we right. have the gothic storyline right there. And right off the bat, somebody is murdered, so we suspect people we don't know. It's kind of like this mystery, murder mystery. It's everything you would think gothic, but except comedic and goofy and weird. Yeah, it's um, it, it kind of made me think of like the Adams family because the, these yeah. guys are all related. And they all have like their weird quirks. Um, like, uh, the, the one is, like, a gun nut. Yeah, and the, he's hilarious. Yeah, the mom's a knitter. Um, they all have their hobbies. Yeah. Which which calls for one of the... Basically, this the lead has to survive in this house. He starts to have some love interest. And mm-hmm. you gotta kind of guess who the killer is here and there. Right. And, and there's a lot of funny visual stuff, slapstick stuff, Three yeah, Stooges-style humor. 
you know, and, and it works. But mm-hmm. the one, the my favorite reveal in the entire movie is um, when he's sleeping and a hyena almost attacks yes. him. Yes. And the hyena's just a stuffed hyena. And he's like, you keep hyenas? And the one guy's like, well, of course. Why would you keep a hyena? Well, the end of the it's the end of the world's coming, and he's like, "Oh, well, in that case," and you realize that this one character you thought might be okay is completely insane. Right, he's like building an ark, and yeah, but, but there's just some really gold moments in here because the house is falling apart, but they have to stay in the house where they won't get the inheritance. Right, and they all want to get the inheritance, so you know, there's that. And like I said, and the house is dilapidated and just falling to pieces, and. One of the characters is eating dinner, and he has an umbrella over him because, mm-hmm. like, he's eating dinner, and like, just raindrops falling at him, which means he sits there every time. Like, he he has the routine. Yeah. Um, the yeah, I think the whole like family, the core family, that you know, they're they're all just really fun. Um, yeah. I there's the brother with the the gun, the yeah. uncle. Um, I think he's great, and you know, you never know what side he's on for. I think yeah. the majority of the movie. Well, it's so funny because the whole movie is <coughs> raining, so he mm-hmm. he has the umbrella, but then it plays into that character even further when you realize he's building the second arc, right? This arc, and you're right. just like, oh god, they took it that far, but it's right. really funny. Oh, the the, the grandmother. Or, or the mother, you know, she's, like, constantly knitting, and I guess she knits, like, miles at a yeah. time. She's not even knitting anything in particular, and it's like, the main guy's like, well, what would happen if you stopped knitting? She's like, well, I'm afraid what would happen? You know, like... They're crazy. Yeah, they they're, all have some sort of mental illness. Yeah. And the one guy's just always trying to attack him because he's trying to sleep with his daughter. She has right. The lead is great. He's very funny. He's mm-hmm. got the right kind of charisma about him, and he moves around. It looks like a lot of these people are doing their own stunts, oh, jumping yeah, around. I, think so. it's, I laughed quite a bit. It's very enjoyable. It's not mm-hmm. like any other Hammer movie at all. No. I mean, with the comedy with the Hammer movies filled with any characters, and they're just kind of in it for a second, but they seem like they could be real characters. Mm-hmm. These people are not real characters right i mean these are like the background characters from the other ones like the drunk from frankenstein (laughs) they made a feature film with the background characters from the hammer movies this is what would happen right uh i like it i think it's the most different of the hammer movies to be honest i would recommend checking this one out um unfortunately it's not in the books either book yeah it's not in either book um there there is the plot element but i'm slightly confused of and that's like they have to stay in the house, but Casper was... Well, he had to be back before midnight. Is Every day before was? midnight, okay. they had to be back or they forfeit their will. That's what it was. They have it down to like a clock, too. Like one yeah. of the characters, he's, he's like... Because <gasps> they have like 12 clocks yeah, in the there, house. Yeah, there is a, a fun thing with the, the clocks. clocks. I don't want to get that away. But there's but... a lot of fun things in it. Like I said, mm-hmm. trap doors. Trap um, doors. Uh, you think acid. It, the acid. Acid tie. Really um, and of course, the swamp. Yeah, quicksand. there is a swamp. So, I mean, is there mm-hmm. anything more gothic than the mansion in quicksand? Probably not. Right. But it's also ridiculous. You, this is something you could watch with your, like, 10-year-old or something. Yeah. I, I laughed quite a bit. Yeah, I, I was laughing quite a bit. It, it's, um, you know, it, it does feel American to me. Yeah. Yeah, I think more American than, like, a Hammer film, but... Yeah. Um, this and Shadow of the Cat probably feel least Hammer. I, I would I would say yeah, but and and unless we incorporate the 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 sci-fi stuff because the sci-fi stuff feels different too. And is this the first color contemporary movie? That's what that's what I was wondering. I was trying to think there was another one, and it's hard because like we those four movies we did watch that I had on the Mill Creek sets before this that I reviewed. I think the one with Peter Vaughn and wasn't it? Jeez, was it Donald? Not Donald Pleasant. Um, Donald Sutherland in it. I think that one was contemporary. I can't wonder if that one came first or not. That was the one with kind of the crazy family, and I thought that was pretty good. That one might have been before this, mm-hmm. but I'm not 100% on it. 
Yeah, because it seems like like so, so far what we've seen anything contemporary has been in black and white. Yeah. But you know we're going to get to the seventies Dracula soon. 1972? Yeah. We're not getting that for a while. Next week is Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, I believe, or Blood... I think it's Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. And then after that is the evil Frankenstein. Then? The Gorgon. The Gorgon. And that's what I'm excited for. But I have no... I have no reason to be excited for. I'm just hyping myself up, aren't I? I don't Man, know. I, I've, I've seen the Gorgon. You have? I've not. You've not? No. I just like Gorgons. They're, they're like my thing. All right. Well, I would recommend this one. I'm going to give it probably... Um, Six and a half, seven, somewhere in between there. Six and a half and seven. I would recommend it. I, I'm only going to go three and a half out of five. Yeah, seven. Is that seven? Yeah, I gave no, it six. No, it's three and a half out of five. You, what, what, I said six and a half, seven. Numbers? That's the same thing. No. Same thing. Three and a quarter out of five. That's six and a half. That's fine. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I did like it, but um, three yeah. and a half is a high rating. People always give ratings, and they'll be like, like a two and a half, I think, is is passing to me. Anything below a two and a half is not good. Yeah, I out of five, and then five out of ten is good. See, yeah, anything mean, below that, I'm like, that's not good. I I like like three is an average movie. Three is good. Two is a little bit out or below average, but maybe you like it. Maybe it's a bad movie that you like. Yeah, I I don't um, know. I rate on what I like, even if I think it's bad. I'll bump it up a little. Right. Bit. I I don't have a rate. I'm not a rater. I'm. A... Yeah. I mean, I don't like rating things either. I don't even know why I started rating the hammer things. I rate on Letterbox, but I rarely rate my reviews. I just talk and hopefully understand if people will enjoy it or not. I just play video games and go to bed. Well, hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, next week is Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, and we're out of here. Are you interested in property? Desperately in need of somewhere to live or die. Then we have the very place for you. Femme Hall, they call this old dark house. Why don't you drop in? Sometime. May I introduce a friend of Casper's, Mr. Pendrell? Such a surprise to find he had a friend. We're having you for dinner. Delicious. We should warn you that the Femme family have some very killing habits. But don't lose your patience. You may lose your life. Living in the old dark house is Roderick, the eldest Femme. Then there's Cecily, the prettiest and youngest. Something terrible is happening here. To leave before the others find out. The others? Who are the others? Well, there's Aunt Agatha, who loved knitting, surrounded by a host of wool gathering relatives. Something or someone must have needled her. Must have been murder. She always knitted so carefully. This is Potiphar, and let's face it, he is plain potty. There isn't much time left, Mr. Pendrel. There isn't much time. Morgana, of course, is the femme fatale, one of the amenities of the house. Don't you have any boyfriends? I always had to be home by 12 o'clock. Well, things were just getting started, and I had to stop. Also in the old dark house, you'll find Casper and Jasper. And dead or alive, they look the same. You're, you're there, and you're dead. No, I'm not. Yes, sir. Uh... 
Tom was just a visiting American who came by accident, and by accident, he was still alive. Remember, we are the sole agents for this desirable property, an exclusive residence that's murder to run. It will be vacant any moment now, on dead easy terms. Okay, let's hop into these questions. I got a lot of answers to questions this time, so bear with me. Uh, James Grimmer, do you find positive reviews easier to put together than negative ones? Ah, I don't know, 100%. What I try to do most of the time, um, if I'm neutral or negative or even or even positive to a certain extent, I just try to come in and you know I'll let people know if I like it or not. But I've had reviews where I didn't like the movie and I gave the review and, and then somebody involved with the movie was like, glad you liked it. And I'm like, I don't think that was positive at all. I don't understand where you're reading that. But I always try to just explain the movie, the plot, some of the things I think are positive, some of the things I think are negative. And then at the end, I want the person who's watching to you know kind of see if it's for them. I'm not saying that's, I don't think that's a cop out at all. I think that, you know, a job of somebody who's watching a lot of movies or not even really critiquing or reviewing, whatever, and I don't do any of that, really. I kind of just come in and talk about the movie a little bit and, you know, do some things about it and, you know, talk maybe some positive and negative. And then the person who's listening will say, you know what, I, that sounds like it's something I would enjoy or be interested in because at the end of the day, not everybody's tastes correlate and you know your taste better than, you know, the reviewer. So I know some people say I find a reviewer I trust and I, I dig what they dig. Um, so that they can go that approach, but I, I don't really feel negative nor positive. I hate giving super negative reviews. Occasionally it does happen that I just couldn't stand something, but I don't like doing it. And if I watch something that's indie on my own, it's not sent to me to review and they, I, there's no real review. Sometimes I won't cover it because I'm like, there's no real reason to do that. But if it's sent to me to cover, I will cover it. Um, I just don't particularly love giving super negative reviews. I try to avoid it, but I will give them if I do. But I like again, I more so try to go in that I'll explain to you some things about the movie and everything like that, and then you make up your own mind if you want to see it, because most people make up their own mind anyways. Jonathan Wilhelm, why didn't they run out of... Um, he's talking about the Critters um, four, 5. He was confused why loud sounds hurt them, so he said, why didn't they run out of the Hungry Heifer in Part 2 when the song plays or explode when they hear gunshots? That's a good question. I, I, that was kind of a weird thing that they involved in the Critters 5, the loud noise hurts them. Also, I thought it was weird that they introduced a nice critter. But, you know, eh, it's not the worst thing ever. Peter Engelin. Uh, Mr. Dave James Parker, this is the question for the week. Talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and especially about Leonardo DiCaprio and Margaret Robbie. Have you seen Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street? DiCaprio should have won an Oscar for his performance. I actually have not. I've been wanting to, and I will eventually. Nick Mua, why do you think so many directors are releasing director's cut version of their film later on? Why not show the original version to begin with? I heard that both Midsummer and It 2 will get director's cuts because they don't want to play a four-hour movie in theaters or they can't get a rating on it, to be honest. So that's probably the number one. Um, which director that hasn't made a horror flick should make one ASAP? Quentin Tarantino. Um, also like to see the Coen brothers do a straight horror movie. Um, or Craig Zoller. I mean, his movies are horror-related, but I wouldn't call them straight horror. Um, if you could have picked your own first name, what would have you gone with? Uh, not a nickel. I'm not even gonna try to say that. Um, I don't know. I like my name 
Only because it's, you know, both my grandparents, Dave and James Parker. I know they're the most generic game names in history, but now as I'm older, I appreciate that I'm named after my two grandfathers. Uh, the Mystagogue. I have never seen a shot on video horror movie. They always look so bad, but this attraction for metal noir makes me want to see it. The amateurish plotting sludge metal music sold it for me. What are your top three SOV recommendations, Mr. Parker? Ooh, just three? I'm going to give you Bloodletting. I know it's not one of the more popular ones, but it's my favorite. Um, and then I'm going to give you, I'm just saying, Redneck Zombies, because it's goofy and weird and out of this world. That or Burning Moon, pick one or the other. And then I would go with something that's more practical SOV that a lot of people probably saw when it came out. Um, you know, 555, I'd go with 555. But um, one I like better is Venus Flytrap. So I gave you like five, but William Wolford. Hey, what Blu-ray players do you own? And do you own a region free? I do own a region free. Um, my region free, I can't think I went to like a, a website called region free and found one that was decent. Um, uh, the region free one, I think is a Samsung, I want to say, and it works pretty well, to be honest. Um, I, I keep it set to B because I only have A and B. So I keep one for A, one for B. I can't think of what it's, which one it is. Um, I bought it a few years back, so. Not quite Final Girl. Did you grow up in Bloomington? If so, I bet I ran into you at the video store I worked in uh, worked on in Kurtwood. No, I did not grow, in Blooming, grow up in Bloomington, but I had made some movies in Bloomington in the past few years. I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. Okay, got more questions. This is a really long kind of thing here, so I'm not going to read all of it. And uh, Gary Jeffrey, and um, right here he says, Hitchcock is not overrated. I'm not sure what he's talking about. I never badmouth Alfred Hitchcock. But he says, but a lot of Arrow films releases are overrated. But most were underrated when released back in the day of VHS. But why such the interest? Is it the artwork that sells it or the bunch of features? Just a quick question. What do you think? Be honest. And he goes on to explain that he's been buying a lot of the releases and selling them right after because he's not digging them. And... Uh, I really like a lot of the Arrow releases, um, but um, I don't think it is the artwork that sells a lot of those releases. I think that Arrow has, you know, uh, a certain prestige about them. So when people see a movie being released by Arrow, they think, oh, this must be a classic. And, you know, it happens a lot with a lot of these, you know, labels like Synapse or Severin or any of them or Vinegar Syndrome even to a certain point. People are like, oh, it's on Blu-ray. It must be great. And that's not necessarily always the case. And more so, it's not always going to be for you. So, um, you know, Arrow, as we get further into like this release, you you know, the releases, they're not going to always be a giant cult hit because there's only so many great films made. I mean, there's a lot that aren't released, but the rights are tied up. So, you know, when stuff like, you know, um, what is it, the, the Big Chill or Trapped Alive Arrow puts out, which aren't necessarily particularly great movies or scared stiff, but they have some, maybe some, to some people, they have some fun elements. And when they're released, people expect maybe this is going to be another, you know, you know, uh, Slaughterhouse, not even Slaughterhouse, like Slaughter High or something fun that they could dig into and it, it lets them down a little bit. I don't think it is the cover arts a lot. I mean, because look at stuff like Criterion, a lot of their cover arts on stuff like The Brood, I think is appalling, but I love The Broods. I bought it, but I would have bought it anyways if it was a Cronenberg movie because it's Criterion. So it's not always the cover art that sells it, maybe just enable the name of themselves anyways. I love Arrow. I think the last two releases I just covered, Alice, Sweet Alice and Cruisin' are both great releases and both great movies, so I'm not sure what your tastes are and I don't mean to badmouth you or anything like that, but I don't think it's always the cover art. I do think sometimes people buy movies just for slip covers. I really do think that happens. I really do. I look at Vinegar Syndrome. I mean, they, I buy all their stuff, but the slip cover is not why I buy it, to be honest. I buy it because I want the movie. So I do think that sometimes there's a lot of people that do buy it for cover art and slip covers. So maybe it sucks them in, but hey, that's no different from the 80s and the video stores, right? Sometimes I think it is that, but not always. Um, 
And then we have uh, answers. I asked what your most twisted or transgressive SOV movie was. And if you didn't have that, your favorite. So Jonathan Wilhelm, as far as my favorite SOV film, Video Violence. Bumpus Hounds. Uh, my favorite crazy SOV flicks are Schizophrenic, which is, a, is that the Ron Ankins one? Crazy movie. And The Bride of Frank. I've not seen that one. Zach Nolan, Cannibal Campout, Funny and Sadistic, Soup's On. Paul Weichel, Dead Silence is another good one flick from Hugh Gallagher. There are too many good SOV movies out there. I would say that Splatter Farm was pretty ambitious. The Polonia Brothers were very young when they made it, and I remember having a decent amount of gore. There were also elements of necrophilia and incest. I'm sure there were actually more than what I mentioned, but it has quite been quite a while since I watched it. Have a good one. I mean, I you too, but I, I do think I've seen Splatter uh, Farm, and I remember some crazy stuff in there. Casey Robertson, I haven't really seen any twisted SOV movies horror movies but my favorite is video violence i also love killing spree which is third i think it was shot on film cannibal camp out truth to dare critical madness also i think shot on 16 edited on tape gorgasm and gore horror i used to confuse some tim Raider movies too because the later ones were shot on video and then the earlier ones were shot on film jordan bibby camp blood boarding house whichever massacre the ripper splatter farm and video violence are my favorites um uh fozzy i always mispronounce his real name so i'm not going to say it uh fozzy from i see him at wasteland etros um Alex uh, Powers, Argoff the Madden Mutilator. And then he goes to correct himself. Oh, SOV, sorry. Uh, Killer Nerd, Bride of Killer Nerd, and The Ripper with Tom Zavini. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Aaron Fram, Video Violence. Roger B., Suffer Little Children. Nathan Rumler, I'd have to think a minute about but most fu- about the most fucked up, but my favorite is Bloodletting, though. Uh, Jonathan Knight, not sure about most screwed up. Got to dwell on it. But Redneck Zombies is easily my fave. That's also one of my all-time favorite ones. Marcus Cook, Bloodletting, and Shattered Dead are still my top two SOV movies. Love both of those. Shattered Dead is totally an underrated, unique movie. Uh, Brandon Motley, Savage Harvest is my favorite. Adrian Baez, Spine is my favorite. Uh, Maddie Deering, Video Violence is definitely my favorite. I love Part 2 as well. Killer Nerd as well. And Splatter Farm, Black Devil Doll from Hell and Burglar from Hell 2. I don't know about Fucked Up, but there are some of my favorites. Also, Spirit Animal Movie hopefully will be on that list like this one day. Is that the movie you're making? Um, Angie Matera. Most Twisted, I'd say Suffer Little Children. My favorite one, though, is Video Violence. A lot of love for Video Violence. And then what else do we have? Jason Fetters. I grew up with Todd Sheets, and we both love Creepshow. So we worked in a haunted house in Kansas City and used to film a low-budget version of Creepshow called Shadows. It was filmed on a bulky VHS camera, but we had a blast making it. Um, and then I think he goes, uh, we even put it on, uh, somehow it got cut off. We put it on the Sheets of Gore, Volume 1 or 2 or something like that, which is available at the SRS Studios uh, website. So that's cool. Uh, Belinda McKay, Video Violence and Captives. Uh, Derek Austin, 555 is pretty cool. Descort Service and American Holocaust were fun. Shane Glass, Boarding House. Doug Waugh, sad- Sadistic Eroticism. Um, that was a uh, wild that release, right? And then what else do we have here? We have Matt Brown, Most Twisted, We Violent Shit series. Uh, and my favorite would have to be Video Violence 1 and 2. Corey Walter, I really dug Death Row Diner. If I had to mention one more, then I'd say Murder Lust or Life of Jeffrey Dahmer from Intervision. Those are both cool movies. Ryan Sandowski, um, Does City and Panic Count? And I think that was shot on 16 and edited on tape. So, Sean Donahue, Creep, The Porno Cut. Didn't know there was a porno cut of Creep by Tim Ritter. Clint Kelly, Burning Moon is the most twisted. My favorite is Sledgehammer. Obviously, I know Clint helped him get Sledgehammer released. Um, James Grimmer, as far as transgressive SOV movies go, The Burning Moon is definitely up there. I'm not well-versed in German splatter, but it stands out due to its cover art as well, and it's uncompromising gore. For favorites, I would go with Zombie, Bloodbath, and Video Violence. One could view those as transgressive, but to me, they are movies that are just the epitaph of shot-on-video since they capture the fun of it. 
Ben Rose, Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness. Again, not SOV. Uh, Dan Detea, or Detea, Video Violence, Trash Humpers. But my absolute favorite uh, SOV flick is Marcus's, Marcus Cook's Rot. I can't even count how many times I've seen it. And my friends and I will watch it and just have a blast every time. Laughing, cheering, just everything about it is such a classic. It actually may be one of my top 10 horror punk uh, movies of all time. And my favorite punk film alongside Alex Cox's Repo Men. And then we have some old answers, which is, what did I ask last week? I can't even remember what I asked last week. Oh, uh, favorite defunct Blu-ray DVD label. Okay, make sure I don't miss any. Ben Miller, uh, add something to weird to that list, something weird video to that list, uh, companies that aren't dead but still don't release as much as they used to. James Grimmer, since I'm an Asian whore, I missed the Danger After Dark label from TLA releasing. They put out some pretty out there stuff, movies such as Meatball Machine and Suicide Club. I also miss MGM's DV labels. They were my introduction to a fair amount of genre films back in the day. Um, David Lawrence, no shame. Similar material covered and bettered by several labels, but scattered and struttered. DP Zach Voitas, Dragon. Jason Casper, Shriek Show. Matthew Cantor, Gorgon Video just disappeared. Stephen Millen, Panic House. Bobby J Jose, Dead Alive Productions, the same people who released The Burning Moon, Olaf Eggenbach, and Disembodied on VHS. Uh, Shaheen, a Barbarian, Old School Anchor Bay for sure. Old Anchor Bay for sure. Shane Glass, Elite. Richard Stringham, Pre-Stars Anchor Bay. Dominic uh, Fabri, Panic House was awesome. I think it was run by ex-Blue Underground employees just like Severin. Really a shame. They were only able to release such few titles. My second pick would be No Shame. Andre Scott, it's still around. I just think they're not, they used to be, but Anchor Bay. I also miss Magna Entertainment, ADV Films, and Central Park Media. Sean Brucker, Street Show, Subversive and Elite, Ben Miller. All right, the same question. Okay, I was just repeating it. I'm talking because I'm an idiot. And then our question of the week is, I want to know who is one indie actor slash actress that you don't think gets enough recognition? And one uh, indie filmmaker who deserves more attention. Same thing. One indie actor, actress that deserves more attention and one indie filmmaker that deserves more attention. So, um, yeah, I guess uh, we'll hop into the update. Okay, guys, let's hop into this. First, from uh, Shout Factory, Scream Factory, is Serial Mom. Uh, John Waters flick. I haven't seen this in a very long time. Remember digging this movie a lot. Remember it being very funny. Uh, yeah, cool stuff. Can't wait to check this one out again. It has some nice special features. So, yeah, Serial Mom. And then we got some from the second, uh, from the Kino sale of my second order, The Killing of Sister George. I believe this is a Robert Altman movie. Suzanne York's in it, so wanted to check it out. Sounded cool. Sounded interesting. Um, the Robert Altman I have seen, I enjoyed, and uh, the Susan York movies I've seen, I really enjoyed. So yeah, it's a Robert Altridge movie. My bad, my bad, my bad. So yeah, Altridge I love too. Dirty Dozen. Um, you know, whatever happened to Baby Jane, The Big Knife. Oh, my bad. I know a lot of people confuse those two. So then we have The Great Scout and what is that? Cat House Thursday? What is this? The Great Scout and Cat House Thursday. Yeah, the title of that movie is super bizarre. I grabbed this one because it's like a big chase movie here, but uh, the cast just looks so good and fun. We have Lee Marvin, Oliver Reed, Robert Colt. I'm not sure who Elizabeth Ashley is, but she's probably got one of those faces that I see, I know. Strother Martin and Sylvia Miles. So, yeah, cool stuff here. Uh, Oliver Reed plays a Native American. I'm not sure how that's going to fly or how that's going to portray. But, yeah, this one looks super weird and goofy. But, yeah, the cast is wonderful, so why not? Then we got Michael Caine in The Black Windmill. Um, 
I think I grabbed this because didn't Don Siegel do this one? So yeah, the ultimate exercise in controlled tear. Michael Caine's good actor, of course, obviously. Yeah, and I got this because it was a Don Siegel flick and it had a nice cast in there as well. Who else is in here? Oh, Donald Pleasance. Come on, can't pass that up. Yep. And then we have The Outsider, which I'm not too familiar with. Looked like an 80s French action kind of deal. So yeah, I, I don't know. It looked fun, looked unique, and I uh, want to broaden my horizons a little bit. So yeah. And then I also grabbed The Professional, same actor. So I figured let's check them both out together. Not seen either, like I said. And then we have National Lampoon's Class Reunion. I finally grabbed this. I guess it's a horse spoof in the vein of student bodies, which I love. But not as good as student bodies. Maybe it's more like Saturday the 14th, which I don't know if I've ever seen a whole movie of that one. Just maybe you saw part of it on TV when I was younger. But yeah, horse spoofs. And then we have Highway Patrolman by Alex Cox. This looked weird and unique and different. And uh, his movies that I have seen have been weird, unique, and different. So I figured I'd check this one out. I believe it's a newer film, yeah. So, yeah, Highway Patrolman. Kino. Then we have some Ronin flicks. Scorpion, we have Too Scared to Scream. I actually have this VHS. There has to be a morning after, but only if you survive the night before. Nice broken mask on there. This looks like it's advertised as a slasher, but it's probably more of a police procedural. So Then we have Moon and Scorpio. This cover art to me. Always made me want to check it out because it's got the skull in the sky, the broken ship. I had the VHS and I rented it as a kid and they just turned it off because it was just like a thriller deal and I was like five. I don't know how I managed to get my mom to let me rent it, but I did. The scorpion in the water always made me think it was going to be a giant water scorpion. And I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to watch this. And I'd see this back and I was like, oh, I need this. And then it was such a letdown for a kid. But it's got a nice cast as an adult, right? So Moon and Scorpio. And then we have Youngblood, also from uh, Scorpion Films. I don't know much about this one. It looks like a gang kind of youth movie, so yeah, could be cool. And then we have The Bridge Over River Choir and Guns of Navarone, double feature. I wanted the 4K Bridge Over River Choir, but you know, hey, I didn't get, I wanted Guns of Navarone too, so I got them together. I've never seen Guns of Navarone. Um, I know it's a J. Lee Thompson, so I wanted to check it out for sure. Why not, right? And then the last is a DVD, Light Blast, Eric Estrada, post-apocalyptic collection from Code Red. Got a good deal on this, couldn't pass it up. I missed it when it was on DVD originally. This looks nonsense. Uh, who is it? Is it, uh, yeah, it's Ennio Castorelli. So, yeah, makes action movies pretty good. So, I guess we're going to hop back to the video. All right, guys, thank you very much for watching. And as always, you guys have a good one. Yeah.